The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Okay, let's go ahead and start, if we could. All right, we're continuing our uh, study of systematic theology. We're right in the middle of a thought, I think, last week, and that was it. We had to go. So, uh, I've got the handouts to extend the study this week, and uh, picking up, I think, about where we were last week. And uh, we are talking about the Scripture and looking at the attributes and nature of Scripture. And we've seen that systematic theology must begin with a good, strong doctrine of revelation. That is a doctrine of Scripture, uh, how it is we have our information about God. And obviously, we must begin there because uh, after we forget, uh, finish the section on Scripture, we're going to go right into the study of God. And God has willed that we cannot know Him except that he reveal himself to us. Uh, he is wholly other than us. He's separate from us and, and holy and high and lifted up. And so if he will not reveal himself to you, you will not know him. But he has revealed himself. And so we're going to be studying the doctrine of God after we get done with the doctrine of Scripture. Very, very exciting. But as we've been looking at the Scripture, you all have the handouts? Our copy machine, you can no longer call it Xerox machine, uh, had no staples. So I stood there and stapled them all by hand. I still have, isn't that nice? I still have some unstapled copies back there of what I'm handing out, but I think we have enough for the group that I see tonight. Okay, So we're beginning approximately on page 7 or 8. Uh, we're talking about the Scripture. We're talking about how we know that the Scripture is authoritative. Going back a little bit from last week, we saw that there were some competing uh, sources of authority in a local church. Do you remember what they were? What are some of the things we could look to as authoritative that we could get our leadership from uh, other than Scripture? What would they be? Tradition. tradition would be one. And I gave you an example of a church that uh, leans heavily on tradition. And what would that be? The Roman Catholic Church leans heavily on tradition, things that were passed down, uh, the way that they have always done them. Okay. What's another source of authority? Tradition. And human reason, okay? What's an example of a, of a uh, church or whatever that would follow human reason very carefully? Unitarians, and, the, and therefore they would be a symbol for any, what we would call a liberal church. Now, by the way, the use of the word liberal has been offensive to some people as we've gone through various issues here in the church. It should not be. It is a, a theological term, not a political one. Okay, understand that. It's not a political term. I know the word is used liberal and conservative in Washington. This is not what I mean when I use the word liberal. What I mean is a, is a, um, a term that is known by b biblical scholars and church historians in the 20th century. It has to do with an approach towards Scripture. It has to do with a view of Scripture, which I personally reject and repudiate, that Scripture is essentially a human document, a record of human beings' experiences with God in the past, valuable in that it gives us a record of that experience, but no more than that. Uh, you can see the problems with that view of Scripture because if that's what you think, then why should their opinions be any more authoritative than yours? And so it begins to unravel. But the Unitarians, for example, uh, believed that there is one God and only one God, and they denied specifically what doctrine? 
the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny it. That's why they called Unitarian. Because, and this is the important thing, it made no sense to them. Therefore, reason was their highest uh, authority. They uh, eventually became linked with what other group? Unitarian what? Universalists who believe that Christ's uh, death was sufficient to atone for all the sins of all people throughout all time, and so therefore hell would be empty. And so therefore, if that's true, then does it matter what you believe? No. So go sometime. No, don't. But anyway, to a Unitarian church and you will find out just how interesting are their beliefs and how far afield they've gone. But anyway, they're an example of a group that at least historically has put human reason above all other things. And then there was one other false source of ultimate authority and what would that be? Personality or we could add position. Okay? A good example of position would be the Pope because the Pope is the Pope. If he makes a pronouncement, that's authoritative for the church, that kind of thing. But uh, personality, an example of that would be what? Say again? Jim Jones. Jones, Any kind of cult. David Koresh. uh, Because I am the leader of this religious group, we'll do it my way. And if you don't agree or don't, you know, accept it, you have a a willful spirit, a contrary spirit, uh, you need to get out. Now, I think it's very important that you understand uh, what I believe about dissent, okay? I think that it's possible for Christians to disagree on doctrinal issues. I really do. I think that you can have two spirit-filled Christians that disagree. Uh, you can be spirit-filled and be wrong. <laughs> I know because I've been spirit-filled before, all right? And hopefully I'm filled with the spirit now. But it doesn't give me a stamp of infallibility, does it? And so therefore, it is possible for mature godly people to disagree. And we're going to talk tonight about why that happens. But realize this. I mean, the difference between a cult and a healthy church is that is how you deal with those disagreements. A cult will say, you are of a contrary spirit. You're rebellious, so get out, all right? Uh, a church is going to say, well, we've got a problem here. Let's work on it. Let's go to the scriptures. Let's try to figure it out. Let's, let's try to understand what God says, but we're not going to evict anyone who doesn't agree on, I would say, non-doctrine, non-central issues. Now, obviously, there are central issues like the deity of Christ and other things that if we don't agree, we are not believers in Jesus Christ. But I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about other issues. All right? So these are false sources of ultimate authority. Now, I think it would be naive for us to say that tradition and reason and personality and position play no role whatsoever in a healthy Baptist church. Oh, come on. They really do, don't they? Let's, come on, let's be honest. The way we've always done it before does have an influence, doesn't it? And human reasons, what seems reasonable to us, does influence things. And positions, people that get elected or chosen for key positions, they have a great influence, don't they? And also personality. If someone's got a very strong personality, ability to marshal arguments, etc., they might carry the day when they really shouldn't. But all I'm saying is that these must not be seen to be the ultimate authority in a, in a healthy church, in a Baptist church. It must not. Scripture alone, that's what we looked at. Now, we've seen that Scripture attests to itself as the final authority, the highest authority. It tells us that it is, right? And we've talked about that. I said, now look, on page 7 there, we can see the amazing qualities of Scripture, right? We can say that Scripture was all of these things written over the 1,500-year span, 40 generations. I read this last time, but I've given it to you again. Uh, amazing things about the Bible. The Bible is an amazing book. But it's not because all these external things are true of the Bible. It's rather because the Bible says that it's authoritative that we believe it. And you say, but that's circular, right? Because the Bible says so, then we must believe it. Yes, it is circular. And we talked about that last time. There's nothing wrong with that. It must be that way. Because anything that claims to be highest authority must make a statement about its own authority 
about itself or else something else must come in and tell us. And whatever comes in and tells us that the Bible is authoritative then becomes our highest authority, right? We can't do that. Rather, we're going to take the words of Scripture themselves and look at it, okay? And we talked about that last time. All right, now, on page 8, I think this is about where we were. We talked about north and east and left. Remember that last time? Circular logic about the dictionary. Basically, the idea is that, yes, it's circular, but that's all right. It's all right. Now, number six, this doctrine does not imply dictation from God as a sole means of communication. We should not think that we got the Bible by God dictating the words of Scripture. He did not dictate them, although sometimes he did. Sometimes he did, but sometimes he didn't. Look at what it says here in Exodus 34:27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Well, what do you think Moses did at that point? Wrote down those words. Is that dictation? Well, in a manner of speaking, it really is. Okay? So the Ten Commandments were dictated by God in that he wrote them, really. And then after Moses threw the tablets down, you remember that? He threw the tablets down. The second form of the Ten Commandments, where did it come from? Well, Moses made a replica, another set of tablets. Where did the writing come from? It was Moses' own hand that wrote it. Was it less authoritative thereby? No, not at all. That was, in one sense, therefore, I would think, a form of dictation. We also get it in the book of Revelation, right? Look at Revelation 2.1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Is that dictation? Well, you better believe it is. He told him what to write. Sit down, John, and write this. Write it down. And at one point later in the book of Revelation, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. So he told him what to write. But he doesn't always do that. A good example of this is the way that the Gospel of Luke was put together. If you look at the beginning of Luke, uh, the scriptures there uh, printed for you on the page, Luke 1, 1 through 4, this is how Luke begins his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. What do those verses tell you about Luke's methodology in putting his gospel together? What, how, how did he go about his work? Scientific. Scientific. Okay. So what did he do, Mac? How did he, how did he proceed? I think he researched all of, all of the things and he wanted to make sure he had the facts all put down. That's right. And how did, he go with, how did he do his research? Who did he talk to? Eyewitnesses, who from the first were eyewitnesses of the word. So he would go and talk to eyewitnesses. Like who? What would be an example? Think of what you know, let's say, from the first few chapters of Luke. Who do you think he went and talked to? I think he um, went to Mary. Mary? Right. Don't you, don't you just get the sense that Luke 2 is just coming straight from Mary? But Mary treasured up these things and hid them in her heart. Who would know that but Mary? Right? And so he went and talked to Mary. That's why we really believe that the, that the genealogy in Luke is, is really Mary's genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, whereas the one in Matthew is the genealogy of, of Jesus through, through Joseph, his kingly genealogy. Okay, so you're getting that. Who else do you think he talked to? In Luke 1, maybe he talked to Elizabeth. Perhaps he got the whole story of the birth of John the Baptist from her. Okay, but do you see how this is not dictation? Do you see that? This is Luke going about the work of a, histor a historian. And he's, he's assembling you know, things, he's researching it, he's writing an orderly account, trying to put it in good order. He's using his logic, 
He's using his knowledge of history. He's using his mind. And he's doing it perfectly, isn't he? How do we know he's doing it perfectly? How do you know that Luke went about his work perfectly? It's in the Bible. There you go. That's a good answer. It made it, it, made it in the Bible. And so the Holy Spirit protected him from error. The Holy Spirit prevented him from writing anything down that was false. And so how did he do that? Well, he internally worked through the ebbs and flows of his mind and as he was writing to, to guard him from error. He protected him. And so it was a form of written, it was in fact written prophecy. Okay, page nine. Since this is true of scripture, since this is what we believe, to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Do you believe that? Absolutely. Anything that scripture asserts, God asserts. What scripture says, God says. That's what we're teaching. And so therefore, if you want to know what God thinks about any issue, you should go to the scriptures, find out what he says. And what you learn there, you should obey because God has spoken it to you. If today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah. Remember that? That's in Hebrews chapter 3. If you hear God speaking to you uh, today, don't harden your heart, but obey God. Oh, there's so much truth in there. Those of you who have been on the Thursday Bible study know what I'm talking about. Hebrews chapter 3. He's just meditating on one psalm. I forget which one it is, Psalm 95 or something like that. And meditating, working on every line. And he says, the Holy Spirit says to us, and you read it. And so just as you're reading one of the Psalms, it's as though God were speaking directly to you. And he says, if today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So God's speaking right to you as you're... So to disbelieve or disobey any scriptures, to disbelieve or disobey God. Jesus rebuked his disciples for not believing the Old Testament scriptures. Remember that on the road to Emmaus? He said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so Jesus expected his disciples to believe the prophets, right? He expected them. I thought about recently the interaction he had with Nicodemus. The new birth, the doctrine of the new birth is not generally considered an old covenant or Old Testament doctrine, right? You don't think of regeneration or new birth in connection with the Old Testament, but yet it's in there. It is in there, in the promises of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And at one point, Jesus said to Nicodemus, when he said, you must be born again, remember what Nicodemus thought? What did he think? He needs to somehow get back in his mother's womb and be born. And he said, that's impossible. Jesus said, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand this? So there's a sense of upbraiding there, a sense of you should have seen this. You should have seen that this was the essence of the new covenant. I will, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, it said in the book of Ezekiel. It's in there. You just didn't notice. <laughs> so it's called being born again. So he rebuked them. Future believers were accountable for apostles' words as much as they were for Christ. Uh, John 15, 20. Uh, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Obey? Boy, that's strong. They will obey your words. Well, who's the your in the sentence? The apostles. Now, keep that in mind. We're, we forget that when we're reading John 14, 15, 16, 17, how they were a special group of people. We can learn from what God said to them, what Christ said to them, but they were unique. So it's not true that all believers will obey my words or yours, but they will certainly obey the apostles' words, right? As they were written down in the New Testament. And so there is uh, a sense of the obedience. They're accountable for the apostles' words. Also, 2 Peter 3, 2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by 
our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So I want you to, and notice how he, he just equates in 2 Peter 3, 2, the, the holy prophets of the past and your apostles of Jesus Christ of the present. You see? They're of equal authority, 2 Peter 3, 2. See? I want you to recall their words, he says. And therefore, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. There's a little computer glitch there. That next verse is a separate verse. But what does he say there? He says that God's household, the church, is built on a foundation, isn't it? And what foundation is the church built on? Don't say Christ too quickly because I know we want to say Christ and, and obviously you'd be accurate in saying so. But that's not what this verse says. What does this verse say is the foundation to the church? The apostles and prophets, right? That is the foundation of the church with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That's what it says. So what do we mean by that? Well, what do you think Paul means in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on that foundation? What does that mean? Their writings. Isn't this a way of saying the Bible? I mean, really, when you stop and think about it, isn't that the Bible? You really don't even need the word apostles because all of the writings of Scripture are from prophets. But I think what he's talking about is the written Scripture. We are built on the foundation of Scripture. And all of it points to who? So he is the chief cornerstone. The writings of the apostles, the writings of the prophets, they all proclaim Christ as the chief cornerstone. But the foundation is there. That is why I, th- I think that's what, what Jesus meant when he said, I, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. I don't think it's his confession. Sorry, I disagree with all the evangelical world on that. But I think it's that he is an apostle. And as a result of his unique place, the church is going to be built on him and the other apostles in a unique way. And how is that? Because they mediated Christ to us. They, they wrote it down. They were eyewitnesses, weren't they? John was and Peter and all those. Luke bases his on eyewitness accounts. And so they preached Christ to us. And we're still hearing their words, aren't we? Though dead, they still speak to us, the apostles. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that's why Paul says that the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. And then Paul says of himself... 1 Corinthians 14, 37, If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Can you imagine a pastor writing something like that? Well, he can do it if he's quoting Scripture, but not on his own, you see. But Paul was an apostle, right? And he's saying, what I am writing to is equivalent to any word you have from God. Isn't that amazing? It's one of the reasons people just don't like Paul. He's so confident. Well, he's not self-confident, though. That is his calling. Anything that I'm writing to you on this matter, that is the Lord's command. And if you think you're a prophet, you'll prove it by agreeing with me. (laughs) Now, that's uh, self-referential. But anyway, that's what he wrote. 1 Corinthians 14.37. Disobedience to any of Paul's writings was ground for excommunication. Wow, we already said that in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, the next verse, verse 38, if he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. That's another word for saying excommunication in one sense. Um, ultimately, it uh, could be just rebuked or disciplined. Second Thessalonians 3.14, If anybody, anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. That's very, very striking, isn't it? So, in effect, he's saying uh, that his writing is directly the word of God. In summary, God delights in anyone who trembles at his word. This is one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 66, 2. Um, This is the one I esteem. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
I'll tell you what, any time that God tells us a person or man or woman that he esteems, we should pay attention, don't you think? I mean, don't you want to be esteemed, thought well of by God? He spoke that of Daniel, remember? That he was a man highly esteemed. And so I think, all right, let's find out what Daniel had so that we might uh, aspire to it. He says of a woman in 1 Peter chapter 3, a gentle and quiet spirit is of great worth in the sight of God. So a, uh, a woman, a godly woman, should aspire to a gentle and quiet spirit. So should, I think, a godly man. Uh, and here he says in Isaiah 66 too, this is the man, this is the woman, this is the person, the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Take his word seriously, that's what he's saying. Okay. Now, Scripture is truthful because God cannot lie or speak falsely. Right? So everything, anything God says is truth. It is true, it is truth. What's the difference between true and truth? Well, it's just even more certain. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is not true, but truth. It's the gold standard. I mean, it, God's word is truth. And everything that corresponds to it is true. But his word is truth. All right, 1 Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. <laughs> Isn't that something? Don't be insulted. He's just telling the truth, isn't he? I mean, we are people who change our minds. We are people who lie. God never does either one. Now you say, now wait a minute. Didn't God repent or do other things? That's another question for another day. But I'll tell you right now. He's saying right now, what I say, it comes to pass. What I say comes to pass. Because I don't lie and I don't change my mind. Okay? Nothing's going to come in to change me on this. So... Saul, your days are over. You will not continue as king. Another one of your neighbors who's better than you will take the kingdom from you. That's what he says. He's not going to change his mind. Hebrews 6.18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. All right, that's a little bit taken out of context, but I think we could, we could do it successfully and just say it is literally impossible for God to lie. It cannot happen. So people say, is there anything God cannot do? Oh, yes, there are many things he cannot do. Many things. One of them is lie. He cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He cannot be false. He cannot love wickedness. He cannot do many things. One thing he cannot do is lie. Therefore, all the words of Scripture are completely true and without error in, er in any part. Somebody read this for me, Psalm 12, 6. Isn't that wonderful? The words of the Lord, all of his nouns and verbs and adjectives, all this, the stream of words he's communicated, they are pure words. They're flawless. They're perfect. Isn't that wonderful? God's words are therefore the ultimate standard of truth, as I just quoted earlier. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, a question. If all that is true, are we in jeopardy? Might some new fact ever contradict the Bible? I just wrote the answer there. <laughs> Usually I elaborate, but I just figured I'd put no. <laughs> no, it's impossible because of, of what the Scripture claims for itself. This is the Word of God. Now, what new fact could we have in mind? Like what? National Enquirer keeps telling us the new Gospels they find, a new Gospel of Jesus that has all kinds of other things. 
Could that come up and contradict or challenge Scripture in some way? Contradict, yes. Challenge, no. Okay. What else, though? I mean, so think get back a little bit in history, 100 years or 150 years ago. Have some things come up to challenge the Bible? Say again. The Mormons. Yeah, the revelation of Joseph Smith and all that. Yeah. Uh, Archaeology, yes. Tell me more. How could things come up out of the ground, dusty old things that challenge our conception of Scripture? Like what? Like a femur and part of a cranium or something like that? And it's like, oh, look, now the whole thing crumbles. What else? It seems like I heard that they said, well, this city, certain city didn't really exist or there couldn't have really been a flood that covered the whole earth. Yeah. Right. That's right. Challenges from science, challenges from historians and from archaeologists, challenges from false religions. All of these things could come. Uh, go ahead. That is so true. Um, you know, you think about it. It's been a tough last 120, 140 years in the relationship between faith and science, hasn't it? And they keep working on it all the time. They keep finding things up out of the ground that are supposed to challenge the Bible, right? I can't imagine what physical thing they could show me that would make me think the Bible's not the Word of God. Nothing. Now, it doesn't mean I can explain everything that comes out of the ground. Just because I can't explain it doesn't mean that the Bible's not true. I'm a limited human being. Maybe that I'm not an expert in geology or in anthropology or in um, archaeology. Maybe I can't explain it, all right? But the fact of the matter is the Bible's credentials are better than anything you'll ever find out of the ground, absolutely, all right? Now, I think it's still worth looking at some of those things. And in due time, when we get to the whole creation section, I'm going to talk about not just what the Scripture says, but some of the challenges we've faced. Uh, I've made it a special study, and I enjoy looking at evolution. I enjoy looking at all these things. And I'll be at it the rest of my life because it's been a very, very significant challenge to our faith, hasn't it? Big, big-time challenge. And Christians make a mistake if they don't try their best to try to understand some of those things. So, yes, Mac. Uh-uh. Isn't that amazing? Some of those are the most hideous, grotesque things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it's just... Yeah. They're ugly. I mean, I'm just... I, I hate to be... I know God made them, but I mean, there's just an aspect of God's personality that I just don't quite understand. But He loves those ugly, hideous, deep-sea things. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, we're talking about absolute uh, truth. And therefore, written scripture is going to be our final authority. Now, let's take a minute and look at the doctrine or the issue of the inerrancy of scripture. Are there any errors in the Bible? Well, in one sense, you could say, of course, there are errors in the Bible because uh, Satan speaks in the Bible. Anytime the devil talks, okay, it's an error. Like, for example, here's a quote from the past. You shall not surely die. All right, there's a quote, right? All right, was that an error? Oh, absolutely. We've been proving that ever since as a race, haven't we? We did die. So, in one sense, of course, there are errors in the Bible, okay? But yet, the Scripture gives an accurate record of the interaction. That's the point. And what we want to say when we say, are there any errors in the Bible? Are there any errors in things the Bible asserts or teaches? Now, that's what we're getting at. You see what I'm getting at? So, that's what we're dealing with. And, and so, we get now, at last, to this very key issue 
the inerrancy of Scripture. I have a book here with that title, Inerrancy. That's what it's called. So this has been a big, big topic in the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, in many other circles. Um, and I think it's going to continue to be with us. Now, first of all, what does inerrancy mean? Wayne Grudem gives us this definition. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, the key word in there is affirm. Whatever the Scripture teaches, what it affirms as true, is true. That's what we're saying. Whatever the Scripture affirms as false is false. Whatever the Scripture affirms is the fact. It's, it's reality. And so... Uh, there can be, therefore, no errors uh, in that regard. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the language of everyday or of poetic speech. For example, rounding off numbers, I, I did another document here, and there's kind of an overlap between what I did here. This is a standalone document, and so some of the stuff is covered. So let me pass this out while you all are sitting here. And uh, it's called Alleged Errors and Discrepancies in the Bible by Gleason Archer. And all I did is just kind of summarize some of the errors that people bring out, I only got nine of them, that I had another 15 or 17, but I just wanted to show you the methodology or the approach that people take to refuting some of the errors. When you think of errors in the Bible, what do you think of? Okay, so you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Okay, others. Errors in the Bible. Okay, the contradiction, so to speak, between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 gives one account of creation, it seems, and Genesis 2 a different one. Okay, other other errors. If we get enough, maybe all of you will lose your faith in the Bible and say... <laughs> like what? Numbers in the Bible, and that's one of the first, one, the first things. Yeah, numbers. The, bu the Bible's full of details, right? And a lot of times there are parallel accounts, right? Like you've got the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you also have Kings and Chronicles. And sometimes when you lay Kings and Chronicles side by side, you might run into some difficulties. Other, other examples of errors. Without looking at my sheet. Uh, looking. Oh, no. We'll get to that, that in a minute. Yes. Okay, as the Son of Man, three days and three nights, and it seemed like he was real short on that. Yeah, and we we're expecting a full 72 hours and didn't quite get it. Okay, others. I, I preached on, you know, a few weeks ago on what I think one of the, one of the hardest issues for an inerrantist, and that's the synoptic, the synoptic problem. The fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke will record the same events differently. And it's sometimes hard to harmonize those. Very hard, actually. And I, in some cases, I'm not satisfied with my harmony, but I'm not giving up on inerrancy, you know. Um, I'm just telling you, it's, it's, a, it's a rugged thing. Like when uh, Jairus uh, comes and says, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. The other accounts, he, my daughter is dying. And then midway, he finds out she's dead and he's got to be talked into belief by the Lord. It seems like it's hard to get those two together. It's a challenge. Other inerrant, or errancy issues or errant errors that you can think of. I mentioned one earlier, the genealogies, right? Between Luke 3 and Matthew 1, people seem to have problems. You know, they're obviously two very different genealogies. So, um, All right, well, well good. There are the, the, what I'm getting at at page 10 is that the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the language of everyday speech. For example, rounding off numbers. All right? Uh, Exodus 12:37. the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. You say, well, that's not an issue because it says about, about. 
But it gets to be more of a problem when if you look at, for example, the sheet I just handed you, numerical discrepancies in the historical books. Look at that. You got 2 Samuel 10.18. Do you see that on the sheet I just handed to you? Okay. Uh, and it says there, but they th fled before Israel and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. 2 Samuel 10.18. First Chronicles 19.18. But they fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also killed Shofach, the commander of their army. Right? So those are two different verses. You say, well, maybe it was two different days, two different battles. But it's looking awful close there. It's looking really close. All right? And so that, that it's a poser. You look at that and say, what's going on there? You know? Now, Gleason Archer said there's really nothing to prove that this discrepancy existed in the original manuscripts of Samuel and Chronicles. So what is he doing there? He's saying that the error has crept in through the copying. You see what I'm saying? The error, you don't give up on inerrancy on something like this because it is so easy to add a zero or take one away, to change a Hebrew word. Suppose, for example, the, the manuscript that you're working with had a smudge at that place and you're, you, don't, you don't know what it is, so you copy it wrong, and then from then on, everybody else copies it the way you did it. You made the mistake, but the copy comes in. And so there's a manuscript uh, issue. There's a lot of other uh, numerical discrepancies. For example, the age of King Jehoiachin, when he became king, 8 in Second Chronicles 36, 9, 18 in Second Kings 24, 8. Number of stalls that King Solomon built for his war horses, 40,000 in First Kings 4, 4,000 in Second Chronicles 9. And, and it goes on. And he handles all of these about the same way, that numbers are actually very easy to make mistakes on, <clears throat> but not in the original. The original, he safeguards. And he can say, well, then how do you really hold on to inerrancy? Because we don't have the originals. And that's a valid question. Yes, please. Someone brings up one of these things to us. It probably wouldn't be much <clears throat> Well, you know, they may not. They may not. But I think what, what I find interesting is I look at the list of errors. There's like 22, 23 of, of them. And I start saying, how paltry and piddly is this compared to the overwhelming testimony of truthfulness from these 66 books, of fulfilled prophecy, of the way it speaks right to our hearts and, and opens us up, of the way that it predicts of the future of heaven and hell. You look at that and you say, it's, it's overwhelming. And realize, they did the same with Jesus, didn't they? They looked at him and in a simplistic way got rid of him. Very simplistic way. The man heals on the Sabbath, he can't be from God. And, and they're, they're blind to the overwhelming evidence of his deity. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was for you at Duke. I mean, well, we don't really... First of all, we don't have the originals. And second of all, we got all these translations they've been changed forever and ever, they say. People who make the statement that the Bible's been constantly being changed all the time <clears throat> usually have made zero study of it and have seen how... They, they probably don't know much about manuscripts and how little that they've changed. The whole thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls that was mentioned a little while ago is, is to show how unbelievably little the Old Testament changed from a, like you know 200 B.C. to 1000 A.D., which was their, the earliest manuscript they had. It brought them way back before the time of Christ. And there was like 99.6% correspondence. Now, that's remarkable. You say, well, it isn't 100. Listen, I tell you what, you know, you're, I think that God leaves an out for unbelief. I really think he does. I think that 
<clears throat> he sovereignly permitted these errors to creep in on things that didn't matter so that we could say, you know, people who say, see, David slayed 700 here and 7,000 over there. I'm not going to be a Christian. Well, listen, you know, if that's what it's going to, you know, that there's got to be that kind of correspondence, you're missing the overwhelming evidence of the truth of the Bible. Just as people did. Remember they said, I love this one. They said now, <clears throat> this one's not even based on truth. They said, when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. But this man, we know where he's from. This is very, very interesting. First of all, it's faulty. It was a, a superstition, really, that had crept into Judaism that the Christ would have this mysterious origin. Nobody would know where he was from. Well, that's false. We know where he's from, from Bethlehem. And at another time in John's Gospel, they deal with that. Christ comes from Bethlehem. This man comes from where? Nazareth. So he cannot be the Messiah, right? But Jesus takes him up, and I think it's one clear example of sarcasm in Jesus. All right? He said, yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. Now, it's got to be sarcasm because later on he says, you don't know where I'm from and you don't know me. So at this particular moment, I think he's going, he says, oh, yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. You don't have any idea either my original origination from heaven or the fact that I was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. You don't know my story. You don't know. Okay, but you see how they quickly dispense with Jesus on a little technicality, missing the overwhelming evidence of his life, his truthfulness, his miracles, all the things he did. They can do the same with the Bible, and they will, folks. Don't think that if you can get a good answer to all 18 or whatever of these that you'll talk somebody into faith. It doesn't work that way. Really, this is for you folks. It's more to convince you how few errors there really are in the Bible, if there are any. And I'd say there aren't any. Obviously, I believe in inerrancy, but how few even issues you're having to deal with. All right? How about this one? Uh, the rounding off on page 10 on my sheet. Okay? Um, I like this one. First uh, Kings 7.23, he made the sea of cast metal circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and 5 cubits high. It took a line of 30 cubits to measure around it. Problem is that if it were perfectly circular, geometry would relate the circ circumference of the diameter by the value of pi. You remember geometry? Okay, you remember, right? Not just me. Pi equals, there it is. I gave it out to the, what, seventh, death, sixth, death, fifth decimal point there for you. Typical MIT engineer. Okay, two answers. Number one, rounding 31.4159 cubits off to 30 cubits doesn't threaten inerrancy in any way. Come on, folks. If, if, he, if he had written 31 cubits, would somebody inclined to make this accusation be satisfied? No, you still round it off. Okay, 31.4, is that good enough? Still rounded it off. They're never going to be satisfied. They didn't have lasers to measure back then. I actually think about 30 cubits is the best you can say, right? Because if you don't have really accurate tools, if I go out and get a warped yardstick to measure something, I come back with a seventh decimal point measurement, shouldn't you be suspicious? I mean, it's very, very inaccurate. They spoke in engineers, they say, they talk about measuring something with a laser, marking with a hunk of chalk, and cutting with an axe. Okay? <laughs> See, that's the whole thing. I mean, you can measure with a laser, but if you mark with a hunk of chalk, you're already off. And then if you take an axe and swing wildly, and I mean, the, the fact is, they had a string, and they went around this big thing, and it was about 30 cubits. And so they wrote down 30 cubits. It actually is not too bad. But there is an engineer somewhere, God bless him, who worked on it a little more carefully, and I'm not going to take even a minute to go through it, but he comes up with an accurate analysis of pi even from this. So you look at that, page 10, if you're interested. Turn the page. All right, page 11. Some people get, get troubled by such things as speaking of the sunrise, right? Now we know from the 16th century, Copernicus came and told us what about sunrises? What, is it, what did Copernicus tell us in the 16th century? Sun doesn't rise anywhere. 
The Earth rotates. So the sun not moving. Actually, the sun is moving. We're all, everything's moving. All right? But we are moving around the sun. That's what Copernicus taught us. Is that true? Probably. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But anyway, of course it's true. But the fact of the matter is, do you guys still speak of sunrises and sunsets? Come on, be, be truthful. You know about Copernicus's theory that the Earth rotates around the sun. You know that. All right? But still, you persist in speaking of a sunrise? And a sun, what a beautiful rotation of the earth right there. Isn't that pretty? <laughs> Boy, is that pretty. I have never seen such a beautiful rotation of the earth. I mean, that's not poetic, you know? <laughs> sunset is what that is, right? What's that song? Sunrise, sunset. That would just be ruined by rotation of the earth. Rotation. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not poetic, okay? But the problem is it's in scripture, isn't it? It's in scripture, very strong phenomenological language. Look at uh, Psalm 19, verse 4 through 6. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Stop right there. How many of you think that you interpret the Bible literally? Are you literalists? Have you been looking for the sun's tent? All right. This is clearly poetic language, right? Clearly. But, but read what it's speaking of, though. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Ooh. Well, what would Copernicus say about that? It's very clear. It's like it's traveling like a chariot, like the Greeks believed, right across the sky. Does that threaten inerrancy? I don't think so. You say, well, why not? Well, that's not what David was getting at at that particular moment. All right, same thing with Psalm 139. How about this one? <laughs> My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Woven in the depths of the earth. He's clearly speaking poetically. He knows where he was made. Earlier in Psalm 139, or in Psalm 51, he said, um, you know, inside his mother's womb, or Psalm 22, he said, you made me trust in you in my mother's womb. He knows where he came from. He's not, he's got not, he's not biologically challenged. But he's speaking poetically. And that's okay. So poetical or phenomenological language does not challenge, does not challenge inerrancy. The Bible can be inerrant also and include uh, loose or free quotations. First of all, realize that the quotation mark is a relatively new invention. Did you realize that? They didn't have the quotation mark in the, during the Reformation. The quotation mark is a modern thing so that we can get exact, accurate representation of what was said. We have more of an ability to do this than previous generations, don't we? How, how do we have a better ability to get exactly what was said than somebody who lived 100 years ago, for example? Recording devices, right? Well, they didn't have that back then. Back then, they had people taking notes. So again, with the whole you know, measuring with laser and marking with a hunk of chalk thing, it, in some senses, it's actually inaccurate for us to say this is precisely exactly what was said. You see what I'm saying? Except that the Holy Spirit protects the quotes so that we actually have the accurate quotes. If it weren't for that, I think you all know. Have you ever had a conversation back and forth and then you know, a day later try to remember exactly what was said and in what order it was said? Were it not for the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit, we would not have the accuracy. But realize we must accept and admit that the New Testament writers used loose and free quotations of the Old Testament and did it all the time. And that was okay to do. It was all right to do because they were getting at the truth. They were bringing out the truth of the scripture. He, you know, indirect speech is acceptable. He said he would stop at the store versus he said, I will stop at Kroger on my way home. 
Okay, they're both saying about the same thing. One brings in a little more accuracy, a little more detail. This is especially important in New Testament quotation of Old Testament texts. Thirdly, it is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. Well, what does this mean? Well, some of the Greek writers break rules of Greek grammar. You wouldn't know that because they clean it up, bring it over into the English. Okay, But especially the book of Revelation is known for this. And a lot of it, I think, is because he's writing from a Hebrew point of view. Okay, A better example, I think, that does come over into the English <laughs> is Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following. This is the Apostle Paul. Okay, I love this. I remember memorizing Romans and saying, wait a minute, I'd never noticed that before. What is it? Okay, well, Paul began something and didn't finish it. Okay, here it is. It'd be like this. Let's say you're writing, 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 and there's a parenthesis. Open parentheses. Right, 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 right. If you're correcting that, what are you saying? What do you, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. We have an open parentheses. What are we waiting for? Close parentheses. You never close your parentheses. Paul does that in Romans 5, verse 12 and following. Okay, what does he do? Well, it says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sin, for before the law was given, sin was into the world, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law, dot, dot, dot. Now, you can keep reading that chapter, but you will never find the closed parentheses. What do I mean? Just as is waiting for a what? A so also. It's just logical, isn't it? If you're going to compare two things, you're going to bring out just as this and then go on, it never comes. Now, he eventually does make his point. He's comparing Adam and Christ, and he gets the job done. He does not fail to get the job done. I'm just saying he doesn't ever finish this so also. You look it up. You read it when you go home. But it doesn't mean he's not... That's not the point of inerrancy. The point of inerrancy is different. It's not like every grammatical thing. Let's say, for example, a preacher came out of the back, a backwoods area and was preaching the gospel but breaking rules of grammar. Would you say that man can't be from God? He's breaking grammar rules. Would you say that? No. God can use a prophet like that. I wonder if John the Baptist or Elijah was that way. Elijah was a mountain man, you know. He came there. I don't know that he spoke perfect. Hey, I think they mocked the Galileans the way that they spoke. You know? Uh, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? There was a disparaging of people from Galilee. It was a backwater area. So I don't know that Jesus had a refined, perfect accent either, but he spoke truth. It is consistent with inerrancy that sound exegesis may be needed to resolve difficulties. For example, the synoptic problem. Or Peter and uh, sorry, Paul and James on justification by works. Look at these verses. Romans 3.20 Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay? Works, we're not justified by works, right? But James 2.24 You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Some people have brought this out as one of the clearest examples of a contradiction that you will ever find in the Bible. But it isn't because they mean justification differently. They, they, if you do a careful study, Paul and James, they just mean justification differently. They use it differently. James means justification vindicated by faith in front of people so that we can see that their faith is valid and alive. He's not using it standing before God on judgment day with a sinful record declared righteous by God because of his works. He's not saying that. They are actually talking, I think, about two different things. They really are two sides of the same coin. I think James is describing the faith that does justify. It inevitably results in good works. I think that's what he's getting at. Sadly, though, Luther was so convinced that they were talking about the same thing that he considered James to be an epistle of straw and not ultimately scripture. That's a mistake. 
he thought there was an error in the Bible, and so he jettisoned James as a result. Logic problems, like this one. Titus 1, 12 and 13. Even one of their own prophets have said, Cretans are always liars. Stop there. And then he says, this testimony is true. Well, that's one of those little logical things, all right? The Cretan says they're always liars, and he's speaking the truth. Oh, my goodness. Try to work that one out. Turn the page, all right? We'll never quite figure that one out. <clears throat> okay, and also the use of the word all and every all and every single solitary person. This has run into real doctrinal problems. All right? The word all does not always mean every single solitary person on the face of the earth. You don't use it that way. If you say, is everybody here? Do you mean are all 6.2 billion of us here today? That's not what you mean when you say, is there, it means, is everybody in the set I'm intending? Are, are you all here? Whether family or the class or whatever meeting you're having. Okay, what's the proof of that? Well, look at these two. Psalm 116, verse 11. And in my dismay, I said, all men are liars. Revelation 21, 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. All right, you tell me what those two verses are telling you. Go ahead, put them together. What does it say? We're all going to hell. I mean, there's no other way. Okay, so clearly all cannot mean every single solitary person on the face of the earth or else we'd all be condemned by these two verses. All right, does Psalm 116.11 mean every single solitary person on the face of the earth? Does it? Huh? Just man. All right, well, that's fine. You, you can, we can go the gender route. Heaven will only have women in it based on these two verses. They could do that. They could do that. But you see, even that's true because Jesus wasn't a liar, was he? And so he never spoke a lie. He spoke perfectly. So you've got to be careful of the word all. You run into some difficulties. Now, some current challenges to inerrancy. The Bible, for example, is only authoritative for faith and practice. Why is that a problem? Suppose we say, okay, that Bible wasn't meant to give us information on archaeology or science or, you know, sun rotating around the earth or earth around the sun. We don't look to the Bible for those things. It's not a manual of geology or whatever. And so we should expect errors there, but it's really a spiritual manual, and that's where we look for. What's the problem with that whole line of reasoning? Okay, all right, that's true. Other thoughts on that? Why is it not okay to do that? Well, you get away from the historical record, and that's the whole foundation of our faith, the resurrection. That's true. The resurrection is a historical event, and all the more, God was doing something for centuries before the resurrection. And so if you start to undo the Battle of Jericho, for example, is unimportant or whatever, where, do you, where does it stop? God has revealed himself through history, hasn't he? And so these things actually do matter. Have you ever heard this line? You know, the Bible's only authoritative for faith and practice and religious things, and so we don't really need to look to it for other things. What I find interesting is it's amazing how bold and how encroaching science will be. It'll even come and tell you where you came from, and the Bible covers that topic, doesn't it? The Bible covers the origins of, of the species. And so where the two run, you know, contradict each other, who's going to win? The Bible wins. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Secondly, the term inerrancy is a poor term. Um, and, you know, they say, why fight on that battleground? You're never going to win anyway. You know, and because of the reasons, all the stuff that I brought you through tonight. So why would you, you know, why would you want to choose your battleground there? Why don't you say something else, like they choose words like infallible or authoritative or inspired or something like that. And all of those are true, but I still hold to this word inerrancy. We have no inerrant manuscripts. Therefore, to talk about an errant Bible is misleading. Now, this is a very interesting argument. There was a website done by Mainstream Baptists, I think it was. They may still have it out there. You ought to go look it up. 
And basically, they bring you through a very simplistic binary yes-no, and you end up with no inerrancy. And, it's, and the whole focus is this number three. We don't have any of the manuscripts, so the whole argument of inerrancy is specious because we're only arguing for inerrant manuscripts. The problem with that is it neglects the evidence that we talked about last week, that we have an embarrassment of manuscript evidence, so much so that we are 99.6% certain of what every text says, right? Like I Remember I talked about the 5,000 voice choir and one or two are singing off key. We've got it. We got the note. That one's a C sharp or a D flat. We get it. We hear it. We know what the scripture's saying. And so that whole argument doesn't work. By the way, why did God take those original manuscripts away from us? Why don't we have them in some, some museum in Alexandria? Because we'd worship them. We'd want to go on a pilgrimage and touch them. You know, they might even auction them off on eBay. I mean, what would a page of an original be worth, you know? So I think he always is wise and took them away from us. The Bible writers accommodated their messages and minor details to false ideas current in their day and affirmed or taught those. If you want to get the full discussion of this, look at Grudem. I'm not going to take any more of our time on this. Inerrancy overemphasizes the divine aspect of Scripture and neglects the human aspect. That is so false. The Bible is patently a human book. No question about it. I think, that, I think one of the most amazing books in the Bible is the book of Psalms, isn't it? Because here is an individual in the midst of some terrible circumstance crying out to God, speaking up to God, and it has now become for us God speaking to us. Isn't that amazing? That is God's word to us when you read the book of Psalms. I think that's incredible. It's a very human book. There are some clear errors in the Bible number six. Yes, you've got a list of nine of them. I handed them out, so you can work on those. All right, problems with denying errancy. Listen, inerrancy. If we deny inerrancy, a serious moral problem confronts us. May we imitate God and intentionally lie in small matters also, since God did? Can we do that? See, that's a problem. It starts to creep in. If we deny inerrancy, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything he says. If he was wrong about are these archaeological things, maybe he's wrong about matters of faith and practice too, right? If we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself. And if we deny inerrancy, then we must also say the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but some of its doctrines as well. All right? Any questions about inerrancy? Are any of these alleged errors troubling you? Are they creeping into your mind like worms and saying, I always wondered about that? And there's no good answer. Like, for example, the genealogy. You see that on the bottom of page one? Did you ever wonder about those gaps? You probably didn't even know there were gaps in Matthew's genealogy, did you? There are. <laughs> okay? You say, well, how can you believe in inerrancy and all that? Well, I believe that Matthew was getting at something different with his genealogy. He wanted to say that there are 14 generations in all from David to the exile of Babylon, 14 from Abraham David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from exile to Christ. He wanted to say that. I don't know why, but he wanted to say that. I think it has to do with pointings in the... in You know, each Hebrew letter had a certain point value and it added up to 14 and... And so there's, there's whole numerical theories on this. 14, 14, 14 adds up to 42. It's 6 times 7, waiting for the 7th, the perfect completion, all that kind of thing. All I know is I don't know any of that stuff. I do know that the genealogy in First Chronicles has some extra kings in it, okay? And Matthew leaves them out, all right? Um, yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, I, I accept that. And I'll tell you, you want to know, go right to my hardest one, the synoptic problem. 
I just read, when I'm reading Matthew, I read it just the way it's written. And I just accept it that way, and I don't try to resolve. If you start there, then you're on safe ground. Yeah, that's right. Because it's better safe that way. I'm not going to get into errors thinking any other way. I just accept it the way it's just totally written. Because I know that Jesus is so accurate on jots and tittles, and, and even you know every word will still be there when heaven and earth disappears. So we're, we're, oh, it's okay to be that precise, that precision-like when we can't line them up with Matthew and Luke and all that, I just don't try to. I just say, okay, I don't get it. But it's hard for me because I'm a preacher and I have to get up and explain this. And I don't want to seem like I'm hiding anything, okay? Because if you go to the synoptic accounts, you have to at least come up with some explanation. I am less satisfied with my explanation than I am with just the joy I have of reading it the way it's written, as though it really happened that way. That's the best I can do. Any other questions about inerrancy? Jack. We're warned. That's right. We have no right to change it. And I've looked at these things for so many years that they don't bother me. Um, they don't cause me any distress because, like I said, the evidence for the perfection of Scripture is so overwhelming. If you don't think so, I'd like to urge you to memorize some books of the Bible. Just take time and memorize them. Seriously, I want to put in a plug. You will not regret the time you spend. And the more time you spend learning the actual words of Scripture, the less doubts you'll ever have again that this can only have come from God. It's unbelievable how things line up. It's remarkable um, how you can run along certain themes right across books of the Bible and, and just accumulate truth as you go. It's just beautiful. So take the time to do that. All right, the next topic we're going to look at is clarity. We're out of time tonight, but uh, bring these sheets next time. We're going to talk about uh, the doctrine of the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. Can only Bible scholars understand the Bible rightly? Come next week and find out. It'll answer. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the study we've had tonight. We thank you for the things we've learned. We thank you for the perfection of Scripture. We thank you, O Lord, that we don't have to be troubled in any way um, by questions about the errors in Scripture or about uh, manuscripts or any of these things. We thank you that whether we can actually figure out all of the answers or not, we thank you that you have given us so much overwhelming evidence of what you say is true. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We praise you for that, Lord. We thank you that we're not in doubt as to what your word is, but we have a perfect treasure of your word written for us and we can read it. We thank you that you can convict us by it. So it says in Hebrews 3, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So that we do hear your voice, your actual voice, when we read the scripture. We thank you for these things. And therefore, all of the work we're doing in systematic theology, O oh Lord, is well worth doing. We're accumulating truths about you, about ourselves, about heaven and hell, about the future, about angels and demons, about all the topics that there are. And we know that we have a perfect guide for that study. Father, strengthen us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching 
for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.